Welcome to the latest episode of British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, the podcast for people who understand that history shows us what's possible for us in our lives today. I'm Carol Ann Lloyd, your host and tour guide as we travel back in time. We're shaking up history to look at the stories that don't always make the history books, to consider famous and infamous characters in new and interesting ways, and to look for all the things that we share even when we're living in different times and places. I hope you enjoy this journey through the royals, rebels, and romantics of Britain. Now, let's explore history together. In today's journey to the past, we'll see that being neighbors doesn't necessarily mean being friends. The struggles between the Tudors of England and the Stuarts of Scotland shaped the power dynamics of the two countries and affected the politics of Europe as well. The inevitable mixture of power and personality with the key players in this group make their battles a struggle for personal as well as political survival. So choose your side, Team Tudor or Team Stuart, and let's get ready to rumble. Round 1. A Marriage and a War When Henry Tudor took the English throne, he knew he had his job cut out for him, create a dynasty, and get other countries around the world to accept him as King of England. One way to create alliances and demonstrate the growing status of the Tudors was to arrange marriages with prominent royal families. Toward that end, Henry VII arranged two marriages that would shake things up in very different ways— the marriage of his son and heir, at the time, Prince Arthur to Princess Catherine of Aragon in 1501, and the marriage of his daughter, Princess Margaret, to King James IV of Scotland in 1503. Princess Margaret's marriage to King James didn't succeed in its primary stated objective. It was intended to secure peace between the nations for years to come. It's not unreasonable to imagine that both kings wanted to take over the other country. In fact, it's reported that Henry VII told his advisors that even if a Scots king inherited the English throne, England would still be the dominant nation. Hmm, we'll get back to that idea. In any case, the peace completely fell apart when Henry VIII came to the throne. More interested in battle than treaty, Henry began flexing his muscles early in his reign. Furthermore, his marriage to Catherine of Aragon set up an alliance with Spain against France. In 1509, when Henry VIII invaded France, James IV retaliated by invading England. With Henry away, Catherine of Aragon was regent in England. Daughter of a warrior mother, Catherine relished this role. When the Scots defeated, were defeated by the English forces, Catherine reportedly wanted to send the head of the dead James IV to Henry in France as a trophy. She was dissuaded from this idea and ended up sending Henry the bloody coat of his dead rival. Catherine's victory over the Scots was decisive, much more so than Henry's success in France, by the way. Margaret Tudor's husband was dead and her time as Queen of Scotland was over. Victory for England. Round two, a possible wife. 
When Jane Seymour died in 1537, Henry VIII needed a new wife. Likewise, when his first wife, Madeleine of Valois, died the same year, King James V of Scotland, the son of Margaret Tudor and James IV, needed a new wife as well. James wanted to strengthen Scotland's relationship with France, so he targeted Marie of Guise as his new wife. Henry wanted to thwart the Scotland-France relationship, and he wanted Mary of Guise for himself. Her height seemed to impress him. He's reported to have said that he was a big person and he needed a big wife. His marital history did not impress her. She's reported to have said she might be a big person, but she had a little neck. Did Marie of Guise actually make this reference to her neck and channel Anne Boleyn describing her little neck before being executed by Henry VIII? Maybe not, but it's a great story. And it is certain that Marie of Guise married James V of Scotland, sending Henry VIII off in search of a wife who was more willing to put her life on the line. Victory for Scotland. Round three. A battle, a baby, and a betrothal? James V seems to have avoided all-out war with his uncle and rival, Henry VIII, out of respect for his mother, Margaret Tudor. But after Margaret's death in 1541, James ran out of incentives for keeping the peace. Initially, the Scots won a victory against the English in 1542. Encouraged, James wanted to stage a full-out invasion of England against the advice of his nobles. Later that year, the English secured a significant victory at the Battle of Solway Moss. Marie of Guise had provided James V with an heir and a spare, But tragically, the two young boys died within hours of each other in 1541. Marie was pregnant again during the Battle of Solway Moss. Sick and racked with despair over the defeat of his army, James V took refuge at Falkland Palace to await the birth of his heir. When he heard he had a daughter, he reportedly muttered, It came with a lass, it will gang with a lass, and turned his face to the wall and died. His daughter, the new Queen of Scotland? That's right, Mary Queen of Scots. Henry VIII seized on the opportunity to propose a marriage between his young son Edward and baby Queen Mary. The Treaty of Greenwich specified that Mary would marry Edward and move to England when she was 10 years old. Henry would oversee Mary's upbringing. Although the treaty was signed, some of the Scots were not supportive of it. Leading among the objectors was Marie of Guise. She wanted a French husband for her daughter, not the son of Henry VIII. Henri II of France proposed a marriage between the Scots Queen and his son, the Dauphin, heir to the French throne. The Earl of Arran, Regent of Scotland, agreed to this, and Marie of Guise supported the arrangement. Little Mary, Queen of Scots, was sent off to France when she was five years old, and the English plan for that marriage were thwarted. Victory for Scotland. Round four. Two queens, one crown, plenty of drama. The extremely complicated relationship between Mary, Queen of Scots, and Queen Elizabeth I of England is too much to cover in detail in this episode. It will be the subject of upcoming episodes. And you can always check out Tudor Spies to hear about some of the intrigue involved in Mary's capture. There's a beer cellar, 
coded messages, and double agents, full-on intrigue and the beginning of modern espionage. And now, we'll look at three big questions along the path of these two women. Question one, who is Queen of England in 1558? Mary Tudor, a devoted Catholic, wanted nothing less than to declare her half-sister Elizabeth heir to the throne of England. After all, Mary rejected Elizabeth's claim to the throne in every way possible. She would have far preferred to leave the throne to Margaret Douglas, the daughter of Margaret Tudor. Yes, after the death of James IV, Margaret Tudor had remarried, a couple of times actually. Her marriage to Archibald Douglas resulted in the birth of Margaret Douglas, who grew up in the Tudor court and was a favorite of Queen Mary. But Parliament absolutely refused to change the succession law and make Margaret Douglas the heir. After all, that hadn't worked too well with Lady Jane Grey. And Mary had claimed her throne based on the will and laws of Henry VIII, so she couldn't really set them aside. So Elizabeth became queen. Or did she? Not according to Mary, Queen of Scots. With the support slash encouragement slash insistence of her new father-in-law, the King of France, Mary, Queen of Scots, claimed to be Queen of England as well. After all, as a Catholic, she absolutely rejected out of hand Elizabeth's claim. Henry VIII had no right to end his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. So by definition, the marriage to Anne Boleyn was invalid and Elizabeth was not the legitimate heir. Next in line? Well, Henry chose to ignore all the descendants of his sister Margaret who were born in Scotland, and those even born in England as well. But that wasn't completely legal. So, technically, Mary Queen of Scots was next in line. Boom! There you go. Mary Queen of England. Rumor has it that Mary used to have her page announce, Make way for the Queen of England! whenever Mary would enter a room. She was a bit occupied in France, so nothing came of it at the time. When Henri II died unexpectedly in 1559, François and Mary became king and queen of France. And Scotland, of course. And according to their proclamations and their royal coat of arms and the coins struck in their honor, king and queen of England. And this time, it wasn't at the insistence of Henri II. François and Mary were doing this on their own. But still, they were busy in France, and the realistic impact, say the chance of an invasion of England to put Mary on the throne, was pretty limited. At the same time, if you are Queen Elizabeth of England, and the Catholic priests in your country refuse to crown you, and you have subjects who don't accept your right to the throne, it's not great to have your cousin running around claiming to be the real queen. That's how things stood for a while. Question two, what about the Darnley marriage and murder? Sadly for Mary, her beloved Francois died a little more after a year being king. This left Mary as dowager queen and subject to Charles's and Francois' mother, Catherine de' Medici. Catherine had never really liked Mary, and she wanted her gone. So Mary left France and headed back to Scotland to be queen. A new widow and the ultimate bachelorette, Mary got started on the search for a new husband. 
she eventually settled on Henry Lord Darnley. Darnley was the son of Margaret Douglas. Yes, that Margaret Douglas. Darnley needed royal approval to marry. And because they were both grandchildren of Margaret Tudor, Mary and Darnley were first cousins and needed papal dispensation to marry as well. They didn't worry about those things and went ahead and got married in July 1565. Within a few weeks, Mary became pregnant and the marriage fell apart. Less than a year later, Darnley and a group of Protestant lords cornered Mary and friends at dinner and murdered David Rizzio right in front of her. The lords took control of Mary and made demands. Mary convinced Darnley to switch sides and come back to her, and with the help of her supporter, James Hepburn, Lord Bothwell, Mary and Darnley were restored to power in Edinburgh. Darnley continued to cause problems for Mary, even after the birth of their son, James. By the end of 1566, Mary and the leading nobles were discussing possible solutions for the problem of Darnley. In early 1567, the couple stayed together at Kirkofield. On the night of February 9th, Mary left to attend a wedding celebration. Just after midnight, Edinburgh was rocked with noise. Kirkofield had exploded, and Darnley was found smothered in the garden. It was clearly murder. Bothwell was immediately under suspicion. Elizabeth wrote to Mary, urging her to take immediate action to capture and punish the murderers and warning her that many believed her association with one of the main subjects made her a suspect as well. Two months after Darnley's murder, Mary was taken to Dunbar Castle by Bothwell. Her willingness continues to be debated, as does the reason behind their marriage. Did Bothwell rape her, thus forcing her to marry him to preserve her honor? Did she marry him willingly? Whatever the real reason, the marriage to Bothwell and her subsequent pregnancy by him became the final straw for the Scottish lords. They demanded Mary abdicate in favor favor of her baby son. James became James VI of Scotland, and Mary became a prisoner. Just under a year later, Mary managed to escape from Lochleven Castle. She fled to England where she asked Elizabeth to meet her and support her attempt to regain her throne. Elizabeth used the possible involvement in Darnley's murder to resist Mary's plea for an army or a meeting and to keep Mary under close watch in England. Mary's arrival in England in 1568, just 10 years after Elizabeth had become queen, changed everything for both women. Question three, was Mary guilty of plotting against Elizabeth? For nearly 20 years, Mary, Queen of Scots, remained in England. Numerous rebellions sprang up from the moment she arrived, and they all had the same goal, to remove Elizabeth from the throne and crown Mary, Queen of England. As time went on, France, Spain, and the Pope combined to promote Mary in her quest to become Queen of England. The longer Elizabeth stayed on the throne, the more desperate the opposition became. In 1570, the Pope officially excommunicated Elizabeth and called on English Catholics to rise up against her and remove her from the throne. The next year, the Rodolphi plot, planned to remove Elizabeth, 
followed by the marriage of Mary and the Duke of Norfolk. With help from Spain, England would be returned to Catholicism. The Spanish ambassador was involved the next year in the Throckmorton plot, which involved an invasion of England by France and Spain to put Mary on the English throne. The desperation of Elizabeth's enemies was matched by the determination of her supporters. William Cecil and Francis Walsingham went all in to protect their queen and their Protestant country. Walsingham established a vast spy network that was able to infiltrate the Catholic contingency and prevent the death of Elizabeth. This all came to a head in the Babington plot, where Mary herself agreed to the assassination of the English queen. According to this, according to English law, this was treason. But the question is, was Mary really guilty of plotting to kill the queen? And does that justify Elizabeth signing the death warrant of an anointed queen and sending her to her execution? These are questions that continue to challenge historians and ardent fans from both queens to this day. Whichever side you come down on, we must give victory to England in this round. Elizabeth dies in her bed at nearly 70 years old, and England remains a Protestant nation. Victory for England. Round 5. King James VI of Scotland and the First of England. Elizabeth dies in 1603, and James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England. Mary's son was Elizabeth's heir. So who wins the ultimate battle? Mary's son takes the throne, so Mary wins. Or Elizabeth's choice to succeed her keeps England a Protestant nation. Elizabeth wins. Both sides could claim victory. Thinking back to the thoughts of King Henry VII, a king of Scotland did take the English throne, and for the most part, England was the dominant nation. So where do you land, Team Stuart or Team Tudor? Thank you for joining me for this Royal Rumble. Join us next time to see how Georgian fathers and sons cause so much trouble for each other. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with a friend. Do send any questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you where we should explore next. And please subscribe and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. I'm so glad we could explore history together. Till next time. Thank you.